We'll be starting at the top of the chapter today, recalling Paul and Barnabas being sent out on their special mission from the Lord. And then we'll pick up, um, jumping over to verse 13, uh, as they continue their journey uh, in, in Pamphylia, Persia. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed there from there to Cyprus. Verse 13. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Persia in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Persia, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, 
you will not let your Holy One see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have, have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we, have, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, we're in Acts 13. Uh, our passage today is uh, verses 13 through 41. Almost the whole of it is Paul's message to the Jews and proselytes in Antioch. I personally found it a bit challenging to, to prepare a message for a message. But it's a, it's, a, it's a very important message in the book of Acts because it's the first account of the content of a gospel message that was preached in a Jewish synagogue. And it reveals more than just the message of the gospel. It reveals the heart of God for people, for lost people. Within his great plan and purpose, the Lord does not desire that any perish, but that all would come to repentance. And he desires us having come to him by faith in Christ, to understand and know him and love him. These are examples that are worked into the message that Paul preaches. Just looking then at verse 13. 
first thing we see is wording of either Paul and his party or Paul and his companions. And there's just a few things in these couple of verses before the message starts that we want to take note of. This is an indication that Paul is now the leader of this missionary team. Uh, Earlier in the chapter, it's mentioned that uh, the first time where Saul, who was also called Paul, that's a transition point. From then on, he'll be called Paul. And from, from this point, when they have moved from Cyprus, sailing to uh, Perga, Asia Minor, uh, Paul is regarded as the leader of the team. And there's some things, interesting things to note about this. Uh, first of all, Barnabas, looking at Acts 11, seemed very intentional when he uh, saw the value of seeking out and bringing Saul back to Antioch to teach alongside him there. Barnabas then, in this chapter, as Paul takes the lead, he accepts this change. He continues to walk in his own gifting and calling, even as Paul increases in authority and visibility. So it's, I think, good to note that in all this, Barnabas shows himself to be a selfless servant of the Lord. Truly living up to his name among the brethren as son of encouragement. So as they sailed from Paphos, the island of Cyprus, and came to Perga, it says that John departed and returned to Jerusalem. This is an amazingly short note. Nothing more is said. It was an abrupt departure, though, with respect to the mission. It was not planned. And no reason is given in the text, so we can only speculate as to why. What we do know is that the Holy Spirit inspired and guided Luke to write God's Word. And that includes both what is here and what is not. So, though John Mark's departure was a significant issue, Luke seems to purposely avoid making it an issue here in this text. The issue does come up again in chapter 15, and that seems to be a more appropriate text in which to consider it. It is worth noting, though, that as a result of this, Paul and Barnabas are now without an assistant that they had counted on. But as we move on, we see no indication of that either, of concern over that. They continue in the work wholeheartedly. It's a work that the Holy Spirit has set them apart for and called them to. And so, as we look in verse 14, they passed through Perga and came to Antioch. This trek from Perga to Antioch is not trivial. I suppose you have your maps, and on a map it doesn't look like it's all that far, but it's a tough route. It was a mountainous region, and just took note of, uh, in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, just read a short quote here, that throughout ancient history, we find that the Pisidian Mountains described as the home of a turbulent, 
and warlike people, given to robbery and pillage. This is the area they were traveling through. Makes you wonder if Paul might have had this particular trip to Antioch in mind when he wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six about perils. Perils of waters. And there were plenty of waters, fast-flowing rivers, waterfalls in this area. Perils of robbers. Perils in the wilderness. But God protected them, brought them to their destination. And it says that, uh, although we don't know how many days... Uh, prior to the Sabbath that they arrived, uh, that when Sabbath arrived, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And so in verse 15, the law and the prophets were read. And then the rulers asked if Paul or Barnabas had a word of exhortation, and if so, to speak. I want to note some things at this point. That By this time in Jewish history, the synagogue was the center of community life and the practice of their religion. Jewish communities were settling into a practice of reading the Law and the Prophets in sections, divided up such that the whole could be read through every year. And in some synagogues, it was every three years. And this was really this period of time, it's, it's not clear. It kind of settled into a pattern firmly uh, more toward the second century. So it was still developing, but... This seemed to be uh, already happening to some extent. And so the rulers of the synagogue were responsible for assigning the reading of the Law and the Prophets, and they had authority to choose who might expound on the passages that had been read. So it might seem a little surprising to think of the rulers giving Paul and Barnabas free reign. Might be a couple answers to this. One would be that it's likely that there had been an opportunity to meet with him prior to the Sabbath. The Jews were a close-knit community, and the rulers would uh, very likely have uh, come quickly to know these men as well-versed in the Scriptures, respectable. And there seemed to be a common practice, a, a general willingness to hear from respected visitors And the rulers were probably aware that Paul and Barnabas had taken the difficult and dangerous path to Perga instead of the Roman road that passed Antioch to the north. So it may have increased their respect for them and their desire to hear for them. But one thing is sure, the Lord opened a door for Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel here in the synagogue of Antioch at Pisidia. Before we go on to Paul's message in verse 16... I want to take a few minutes together to consider what it might have been like for the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue to hear this message. And what I mean is to just ponder at this time in history, what was their life like to this point? Their hopes? What was their understanding of the God of Israel? The attitude of their hearts would have impacted how they heard. This would be especially true of the Jewish hearers who carried with them the long history of the nation and the disappointments that went with that history. What was it like for them as Israelites under Roman rule? In particular, just 
not so much to get detailed about what life was like day to day, but in light of Roman rule, remembering what it used to be like. The glory days of the kingdom of Israel were now distant past. The stories were now centuries old. In comparison, right now in our own nation, the United States of America, we're in decline. Our morality, our strength, our reputation are waning. How does that make us feel? And are we nearly down the path as they were? When were our glory days? No doubt there would be many differing answers to that question, but all the answers would be less than 250 years. For the Jews in the first century, it was more than a thousand years before that King David united the kingdom and drove out all the heathen nations capturing Jerusalem and making the city of David, Mount Zion, the city of God, the focal point of worship for the nation. It had been a thousand years since King Solomon built the magnificent temple and brought the Ark of the Covenant into the most holy place. The God of Israel had then filled the temple with a cloud of glory. And after King Solomon had turned and blessed the whole assembly of Israel, he then knelt down before the altar and prayed. And I want to read part of that prayer. Uh, just the first and last part of that from Second Chronicles chapter 6. Solomon said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. You have kept what you promised, your servant David, my father. You have spoken, you have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way, and that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant David. But will God... Indeed, dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you. Let me skip to verse 36. When your people sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, And you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to a land far or near. Yet when they come to themselves in the land where they were carried captive and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, We have sinned, we have done wrong, and have committed wickedness. And when they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been carried captive, and pray toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and toward the temple which I have built for your name. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, I pray, let your eyes be open 
and let your ears be attentive to the prayer made in this place. Now therefore, arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember the mercies of your servant David. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever. This was the glorious national heritage and history for them. But it was 1,000 years ago. The nation began to stray in heart during Solomon's reign. The downward trend continued, corresponding to their straying heart from the living God. Though there were times of partial restoration in response to repentance, the glory days were never recovered. About 400 years after King David's reign, the Lord stirred up a foreign king to carry out his long held back judgment. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem and savaged the nation. Though the Lord preserved a remnant for his purpose and later brought some back to rebuild the walls of a smaller Jerusalem and a smaller temple, In Ezra and Nehemiah's day, those that remembered that original temple wept. They knew the glory had departed. The glory that they'd experienced as a nation with the, the, you know, on the earth and the substance, the temple, the city. They did not understand that that was a physical representation of something much more precious. Now in the first century, several hundred years later, the Jews were a subdued and subjugated people. Their relative freedom to practice their religion rose and fell with the whims of the current Roman ruler. And so... Things developed into this community centered around the synagogue. And the law and the prophets were read weekly, year after year. So I want to get to this then. What went through their minds when, as the law and the prophets were read over time? What went through their minds when they heard Solomon's prayer of 2 Chronicles 6? And of God answering by fire. But then later heard Psalm 89. I'd like to read some passages from that. Note the contrast from the memory that they had or the stories that they had heard. This song, Psalm, starts out wonderful. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. Forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. 
For I have said, mercy shall be built up forever. Your faithfulness you shall establish in the very heavens. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Later, it says, I have found my servant David. Verse 28, my mercy I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. Then a little later it takes a turn. In verse 38. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. How long, O Lord? Will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what futility have you created all the children of men? What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his life from the power of the grave? Lord, where are your former loving kindnesses? Which you swore to David in your truth? Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. How I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Can you hear the agony and the confusion of the psalmist over the turn of events? Now, what about the first century Jews sitting in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia? How long had they been saying or thinking, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? No doubt, there are very many varied places that people would be at in their hearts and their attitudes. But surely, surely there were many who often felt this way. Wondering, where is the promise of the fathers? When the rulers of the synagogue invited Paul and Barnabas to bring an exhortation from the word, neither they nor the other worshipers were aware yet that God had heard from heaven in answer to Solomon's prayer. And God had sent his word to Antioch of Pisidia to heal them. And the word was that God had indeed fulfilled his long-awaited promise to David. But that fulfillment was not as they had understood or expected. If we had not read to the end of the chapter, which we did, it's part of the story, but we're, this message will stop at verse 41, the end of the message. But just suppose that we had never read the end of it. We had stopped at 41. We would have some questions about the hearers of the message. Wondering, will they truly hear? Will they respond in faith? Will they believe his promise? And transfer their trust 
to the true Messiah that God has raised up. Not to sit on an earthly throne in their day, which is what they long for, to throw off the Romans. No, not an earthly throne, but to be nailed to an earthly cross as a sacrifice for our sins. That's what he came for, according to the scriptures. Will they then believe the testimony of the Lord's chosen witnesses and his chosen messengers here before them? That God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead, signifying that through him and him alone, his forgiveness of sins and justification. Will they transfer their trust from the law that can only condemn to the Savior who forgives and justifies? So Paul stood, verse 16, Paul stood and beckoned with his hand and began to speak. As we go through this, we've already read the message itself. I want us to note some things that the Lord was after, things that Paul was after under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. First thing he did is respectfully address the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Throughout this, you'll see an increasing uh, uh, affection expressed by Paul toward them. As the message gets more intense, he's desiring to, to let God, through him, call them to the Lord himself. And he's endeavoring to not put a stumbling block in their way. This is a great example to us. Paul began by speaking in just very compactly, just a few verses. He's, he covered <laughs> hundreds of years of history. His summarizing point in all of it, he's speaking of God's sovereignty in choosing the fathers and raising up Israel as a people, giving them an inheritance and his continuing guidance of the nation through multiple governments, multiple types of governance, for his own purpose. But especially, Paul emphasized when he got to this point, I have found David. This is so tied to the, the, the prophecies of the coming Messiah. This is what they hung on to. And they were going to need to be able to see that it was a cross that he came for, not a throne. First, the throne will come. But first, he came to save his people. So, I have found David, he says, quoting the scripture, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. We know from the story that David was imperfect, like the rest of us. Yes, but God's testimony is that he loved God and he delighted in knowing him. We also find the testimony that he loved what God loved and hated what God hated. This is the basis of God saying, this is a man after my own heart. He didn't look at David and say, hey, here's a perfect guy. He'll do all my will perfectly. No, he will never stop desiring to do God's will instead of his own. 
Fight the fight of faith. Start to finish. And this was the seed that the Lord God desired through, through that seed to bring forth Christ who would perfectly do all his will and become the perfect sacrifice. This is what is so precious about these prophecies and God finding David. See, Saul was man's king. The country, the nation had desired a king. God gave him a king like they desired, and it didn't work out well. But then he found David. God went looking. This was his kind of man. David hungered to know God's will and accomplish it. It was David who came to understand that God desired Jerusalem, Mount Zion, for his dwelling place. It was then David who drove out the Jebusites from Jerusalem, finishing a task that previous generations had failed to complete because of a lack of faith in God, who had commanded it. It was David who brought back the Ark of the Covenant, back to Jerusalem, pitching a tent for it in his own backyard, came to be known as the Tabernacle of David, which has significance later on in Acts. The Jews well understood then that when the scriptures spoke of the son of David according to promise, that it referred to the long-awaited Messiah. So when Paul said in verse 23, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. They would have known what he meant. And then in verse 24 and 25, you can tell by the way that Paul spoke that Paul expects him to know of John the Baptist. He was God's messenger to announce the coming of the Savior and to call them to repentance. So we pick this up in verse 26. Paul addressed the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles again but in more affectionate terms, appealing to them as friends, as brothers that he cared for, to recognize the significance of the message, that a sovereign God had sent the messengers and the message to them. He called on them to recognize that God's way is to send a messenger, to announce what he is about to do, and then to send a messenger to announce what he has done. God sent John ahead of Christ. And now God had sent witnesses and messengers, including Paul and Barnabas, to proclaim what God has done. Would they receive it? Paul is doing everything he can to encourage and lead them to faith in Christ. So in verse 27... It says, for those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, or even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. 
Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I want to, in this short passage, to point out that a key thought, I believe, is that they did not know the Lord. It says, nor the voices of the prophets. These were the prophets, the law and the prophets, that they're hearing weekly, at least. They didn't know them. They didn't know the voice of God in his word. And in fact, they didn't know God. Jesus made that clear. If you knew God, you would know me. They didn't know him. It's actually the same word that Paul used speaking to the Greeks in Athens. In Acts 17.23, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. Think about that. The Jews in Jerusalem that fulfilled these things about Christ, but not the kind of things you want to be fulfilling. It was because they didn't know the Lord. And yet, they were hearing all the time, they were handling His Word. Handling His Word does not mean we know Him. It means we have a book in our hands. God would want us to be like David, wouldn't He? To know Him, to delight in knowing Him, to love Him, to love what He loves and hate what He hates. Paul, what Paul said here at this point was true and plain, verse 27 to 29. And it's a necessary part of the message. And yet, as, as difficult as the thoughts are, it was said graciously, without bitterness or unnecessary harshness towards the Jews in Jerusalem. They had crucified. They had killed their Messiah. And yet Paul spoke graciously about it. Truthfully. But graciously, why? In comparison to uh, when Stephen stood before Sanhedrin, you stiff-necked. Remember, quite a contrast. This is not to say that Stephen was not speaking as he ought. Uh, it's quite a different situation. What this indicates, though, is through Paul's kindness, graciousness, it shows God's heart that not any perish. Many will. There are many that go down the broad road to destruction, but it's not God's heart. And he's waving every opportunity here. He truly cared for his countrymen. Paul did, and the Lord did. So Paul was careful to avoid putting a stumbling block in their path to believing. And at the same time, Paul had set forth this critical issue, knowing the Lord. 
A true son of Abraham has the faith of Abraham, who was known as a friend of God. There was a relationship there. And a true son of promise loves God and delights in knowing him and doing his will, like David. Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire, this is Paul speaking of the Jews, Israel being set aside. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant, there's that same word, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is what's being presented before these Jews in Antioch. If the hearers in Antioch were to be truly children of the promise, they must submit to God's righteousness, which God has declared to be in Jesus Christ alone by raising him up from the dead. It's interesting to note, too, that after the Jews had fulfilled the difficult things, but the things that were written, then God did what was written of him. He raised up Jesus from the dead. This is verse 30. We're going on from there. And so in verse 31, speaks of being seen for many days. Those that came up from Galilee to Jerusalem with him. There's witnesses. And in verse 33, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up Jesus. This is Paul again. Notice how he expresses this. God has fulfilled this for us, their children. He's, he's, he's including, he's, he's emphasizing the brotherhood. All for the purpose of drawing them to Christ. So looking at the rest of that verse, that's when he begins to say, is it also written in the second psalm? And he begins to, to uh, refer to these Old Testament quotations. And this is centered on, on uh, the promise of David's seed. But now speaking of his own, is Jesus, the Son of God. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. That, we just saw a little bit of that in different places I've already read in the Old Testament. It's just throughout. Therefore he also says in another song, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. These are some of the same things that Peter mentioned in the message he brought in Acts 2. And that's because these are very significant common element for the Jews. The, the, the proof that, has, that is supplied here by Paul and same in Peter's case for uh, 
to prove that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the son of David, is this very issue. God raised him from the dead. This is no small part. And this is what's focused on when the gospel is presented to the Jews. And it truly is glad tidings that they declared. So Paul made it clear that Jesus being raised is the proof of him being the Messiah. Some other uh, verses in Acts 3, verses 25 to 26, go along with this. Uh, This is uh, uh, another message that Peter preached. At the end of it he says, You are sons of the prophets, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning every one of you from your iniquities. So we see in this passage that the witness of the word of God is, it is written, and in particular focused on Jesus' resurrection. But in presenting it, Paul has taken great pains to help them see that God has directed everything. From his sovereign choosing of the fathers, going back to the beginning of the message, to his sovereign control in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, the Savior. And that everything has been written that they might know and believe. And so then he gets to his punchline in verse 38 and 39. Therefore, let it be known, forgiveness, justification is in Christ alone. But then verse 39 is a difficult part probably the most difficult thing for the Jews to hear. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Indeed, we know that the law can only condemn. It cannot justify. But they didn't know this yet. And so this would have been very hard for them to hear. But they had to hear it. Because this is the call of the gospel, especially to the Jew, to transfer their trust from something that they must not trust in to the living God and his Christ, the Savior, the justifier of those who believe. Their trust had to be, and ours has to be, transferred to Christ alone. So Paul ends, then in verse 40 and 41, with a warning from the prophets. We don't know for sure what passages from the law and the prophets were, were read at this particular Sabbath. But I have to wonder if maybe it might have been chapter 1 in Habakkuk. This is verse 5 in chapter 1 of Habakkuk. But whether or not that is the case can note that just like the example we see in, in Philip on the road to Gaza where he met the Ethiopian and, and from where he was at, Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture and preached Jesus to him. 
And this is what Paul did this day. He started with what was read in the Law and the Prophets and took the path to Christ. This is an example for us in our daily living, those that we talk to, start from where they're at and point them and lead them to Christ. Some things I want to mention then that if you recall, I, I took a little few minutes there and just had us consider together what it might have been like for the, the Jews in that synagogue, given their history, given the long discouragement of it. We might, might not have such a long discouragement in terms of uh, national history, but we're uh, heading down that path. And I wonder if we're really prepared in heart attitude. We really had it pretty easy in this country. And that can breed a, you know, a sluggishness, not being engaged. I think we would do well to, to consider these main points of the gospel here, but also the... The, uh, the warning contained in, in the critical element of knowing God. That it's not enough to just be familiar with the stories. That familiarity with a story does not save us. Performance does not save us. Trust in Christ is what saves us. We must lay hold of Christ by faith and count all else rubbish. Please turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Just read a short passage out of this. This is Paul speaking of, having spoken of uh, his pedigree and then the fact that he set it all aside, counted it as nothing. Verse 7 through 10. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. That's not just knowing about Christ. That's knowing Him. And you'll see that as we continue to read. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He didn't throw away all that a lot of people would have loved to be able to lay claim to. He didn't set that all aside for some religious documents and history. So that he might know Christ. He might gain him, relationship with him. And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed 
to his death. May this be our heart cry. And I want to leave you with some verses from Jeremiah that have some connection to our text and in a sense is uh, is its own warning. In verse 13 of chapter 2, the Lord is speaking. He's speaking about his people. And he's, as it were, he's speaking like he's incredulous. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's a a, a gripping analogy. But look back at verse 8 because this speaks more specifically to their lives and what they were caught up in. Verse 8. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. I pray that the Lord would help us to take those passages from Philippians, and those two verses from Jeremiah, and be propelled to count all things as rubbish, to gain Christ, to not walk after things that do not profit, to make sure that we don't just handle the law, but that we know the lawgiver and the Savior. May he help us to walk with him as David did and as Abraham did. Father, I thank you for your word and I pray your blessing be upon it. Amen.